Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Hello, I'm Dan Catchpole, reporter with News Data's Clearing Up, joined by my co-host and editor of News Data's California Energy Markets, Jason Ford. News Data covers the energy sector in California, the Northwest, and beyond like no one else. Here are some of our top stories, but first, Jason, happy belated, happy 4th of July. How are you doing? Doing fine, Dan. How are you? Did you have a good 4th? Uh, I did. I did. We, yeah. Um, yeah, got, you know, got to hang out with the kids, uh, watch some fireworks. Yeah. Uh, how about you? Uh, it was all right. I ended up um, getting sick, so I oh. slept all weekend. Slept through the whole thing. It's like Rumpelstiltskin, <laughs> but uh, I'm feeling I'm better. So, yeah, it happens. Yeah, you I, know this. Uh, well, so you're feeling better now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will say this uh, July Fourth. Um, it 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 was, yeah, it was a tougher one. I will say, like, yeah, I always want. I was. I've always tried to reflect on the ideals this country is founded on and where we're at now and striving mm-hmm. to be better, right. Holding ourselves up to our founding documents and saying we're, we're forcing our, let's live up to these ideals. I agree. I actually carry a copy of the declaration and the constitution in my laptop bag, just as a little reminder, but it's always good to be reminded of, uh, yeah, these documents still matter. But yeah, the national mood somewhat dark right now, especially with the uh, shootings in Chicago, which were yeah. horrific. And um, yeah, just uh, just a tragic situation. But uh, we forge on, and this our great troubled country uh, in California. I'll get into some California yeah. en- energy news. We had a pretty big week here with uh, the California State Legislature on June 29th approve some controversial new legislation. Uh, this is really aimed at increasing the, uh, the capacity of the grid with both fossil and clean energy r- resources. Uh, this drew opposition from environmental groups and localities that say this legislation, AB 205, takes away their ability to influence siting of infrastructure in their communities. <clears throat> kind of a Remarkable action here. This flows from uh, Governor Newsom's energy plan. He announced about two months ago a $8 billion package to keep the lights on in California. Uh, This bill is the Omnibus Energy Budget Trailer. It's part of the state budget. Um, And I watched the floor debate on this. The Democrats said they were conflicted. It does include some provisions that will lead to some backup fossil fuels and some uh, maybe some build out, a little build out of fossil capacity. Um, Republicans sort of seized on this uh, typically as a, you know, a chance to attack the state's energy policies that have been focused on replacing fossil fuels. One of the most controversial provisions is a multi-billion dollar strategic reliability reserve to be administered by the California Department of Water Resources. This bill authorizes DWR, quote, to contract for purchase, finance, or otherwise secure electrical generation to create additional capacity during extreme events. Um, DWR may use the reserve for new energy storage systems, 
new emergency and temporary generators, zero emission fuel, and extension of facilities planned for retirement. That means coastal natural gas plants, once through cooling plants. Um, and it also gave the California Energy Commission basically ability to bypass uh, a local authorities in siting generation, which um, didn't go over well um, and didn't go over well with environmental groups either. More than two dozen major environmental groups, including Sierra Club, Food and Water Watch, Autobahn, issued an alert opposing the bills, <clears throat> saying it gives DWR blanket authority to build any type of generating facility while bypassing local, state, and federal laws. Uh, here's a quote. This, this sweeping legislation, which is connected to $700 million in taxpayer dollars in 2022 and more in later years, was unveiled to the public on June 26, has never been subject to a policy committee hearing. So yeah, no hearings, 72 hours for the legislature to review this bill. They did pass it. And uh, this the governor signed the budget putting this into effect. Um, yeah, so I plan on looking into this more this week. What we're really seeing here is just a total bypassing of the normal energy planning processes in California. And some people I talked to on the developer side said, uh, now the private developers will be competing with state dollars at a time when supply chains are really constrained. And kind of throwing a monkey wrench into what is already a complicated situation, but I'll be analyzing this more this week, AB205. But yeah, uh, very significant. Um, yeah. Strikes me as, you know, we're in a Hail Mary situation here with the grid in California. Um, it's been a fairly cool lately, but um, everybody knows the situation here. So that was our lead story in CEM this week. What was going on in clearing up? Uh, well, first off, I just want to say I, that Hail Mary situation. I mean, that's, you don't you don't like to hear it, but I think that's a great way to put it. Like, that's the reality of the situation we're in. Um, yeah. You know, and we're, I just think it's so many ways in, in the energy sector and perhaps I think so, in some other parts of life, but I'll keep it to the energy sector. The, you know, yeah. we're, um, sure. we're being forced to, make hard decisions that we have been able to avoid for a long time. Um, right. And yeah, it's just, we've gotten, you know, you keep putting it off. You got enough margin, you got enough margin. And now we are in a situation uh, where, yeah, you yep, can't, yeah. can't put it off anymore. Now we bet the farm on storage this year and uh, supply chain reared its head really um shut that down but there's other provisions to this bill there's cec uh to allocate funding for long duration storage and the state says you know any of this backup generation is not going to be used very often but we'll see yeah yeah well speaking about speaking of replacing stuff um yeah so a new report from the Northwest River Partners says that removing the four Lower Snake River dams will increase greenhouse gas emissions and only make it harder for the Northwest to decarbonize its energy sector. The analysis was done by Portland-based consulting firm Energy GPS. The report says that the West would have to add nearly 15 gigawatts 
of renewable energy resources to replace the dam's generation capacity. That would cost an estimated $15 billion, and it would take years to complete. During that time, the report says existing fossil fuel fossil fuel fired resources could have to keep operating to fill the generation gap. The study looks at impacts of breaching the Snake River dams within the context of meeting the goals of clean energy laws in Washington and Oregon, which both have decarbonization standards coming up in 2045 and 2040. With the dams, the Western Power Pool already has to add 160 gigawatts of renewables by 2045, which is expected to have a price tag of about $142 billion, you know, give or take a few billion or million. Uh, without the dams, the need for added renewables jumps to 175 gigawatts at a cost of $157 billion. The build-out scenario without the dams would mean that the Western Power Pool would have to build more than 7,600 megawatts of renewable and battery storage each year from 2023 through 2020 or through 2045 to meet the clean energy requirements and replace capacity of the dams. That significantly exceeds the average build of 1,500 megawatts per year from 2007 through 2021 in the Western Power Pool. Now, Northwest lawmakers have long been stalwart defenders of the region's hydropower, but that does seem to be shifting in recent years. Washington Governor Jay Inslee and Senator Patty Murray, one of the state's two Democratic senators, are looking into whether the dam's carbon-free energy uh, can be replaced with other resources. In a separate story, also by both of these by my colleague Casey Mahaffey, she reports that the Public Power Council is asserting that a draft study uh, recently completed for Governor Inslee and Senator Murray about replacing those resources. Uh, the study is beset by flaws that were that uh, were used to bolster the case for removing the four Lower Snake River dams. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, lots heating up in this area. Uh, yeah, it, it's certainly will be a controversial, uh, and I'm sure at some point, I mean, it's it'll be interesting to see how this fight evolves. Um, it's uh, amazing the passion in this issue and some really big numbers in that study. You said 160 gigawatts of renewables by 2045. Yes. Yeah. One, and without, yeah. without the dams, 157 billion gigawatts. Or, uh, yeah. yeah, 175 gigawatts, $157 billion. Whew. I mean, yeah. that's almost unfathomable. Yep. <laughs> gosh, here we are in the West. Never a dull moment. So all of this, these uh, big tectonic shifts in the industry are causing us to rethink nuclear energy. That's right. And as everybody is aware, there's been a kind of remarkable shift in the conversation around Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Uh, definitely momentum to keeping this plant open, which is um, quite amazing when you think about it. With one of the latest developments, the U.S. Department of Energy on June 30th extended eligibility criteria and the deadline to apply for a portion of the $6 billion in federal funding, which is earmarked to buoy distressed nuclear generators through the country. This widens the window of opportunity to lengthen the life of Diablo Canyon. Amendments to the Civil Nuclear Credit Program eliminate the requirement that applicants not recover more than 50% of costs from cost of service regulation or regulated contracts. 
Um, DOE granted extension, extensions after receiving a May 23rd letter from California Governor Gavin Newsom, made good on early indications that the state might make a concerted effort to keep open its last operating reactor. June 28th, PG&E sent DOE comments supportive of the proposed eligibility expansion for the first award cycle and requested a 75-day extension of the application deadline, which DOE granted. That's reporting from our freelancer, Rory Sweeney. So yeah, past six months or so, a lot of momentum, maybe keeping Diablo Canyon open. PG&E apparently is in the conversation. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, never been a popular facility. It's on, you know, there's seismic concerns about Diablo Canyon, but it's such a backbone of, of our energy supply here in California, which is leading to these conversations. Is there much talk about small modular nuclear reactors? Are those seen as a key component of the future? Yeah, I'm not sure how the state views it. You know, we've written about uh, SMR quite a bit. There is definite momentum growing. Um, you know, it's still kind of a niche uh, technology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, I'm sure somebody at the CEC is, is trying to see where this might fit in and, and, you know, what the security concerns are with. You know, I have to wonder uh, localities. If someone says we're bringing in a little nuclear reactor to your neighborhood or area, how that will go over. Yeah, and, don't worry. It's a small one. Yeah. But uh, New Scale, you know, is one of the leaders in this field and uh, has uh, gotten a lot of DOE funding. Definitely, uh, definitely a, a technology that is moving quickly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Idaho Power to that point uh, in their latest resource planning document um, modeled small modular resources. They didn't put it into their preferred portfolio, but they hmm. they actually had it in as a you know, potential resource. Which I think, hmm. uh, if I recall correctly, I'd have to go back and double check my story. But as I recall, was a first for them. I'm not aware of any other utility that's modeled it. I'm sure some have, but. Yeah, yeah, nuclear is kind of a dirty word in California, so I don't know. Um, I don't know the status of that, but something to pay attention to for sure. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, another new resource being developed in the West: offshore wind. Uh, offshore wind developers in the fishing industry are squaring off over where potential floating wind turbines should be sited off the coast of Oregon, reports Steve Ernst for clearing up. It's the first debate over where to develop Oregon's nascent floating offshore wind industry, which could provide as much as three gigawatts of generation by 2030. Federal and state officials are working to open areas for development. The U.S. Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is looking at two areas for development off the coast of Coos Bay and Brookings, both in Oregon. Both areas begin about 14 miles from the coast and extend 46 and 65 miles offshore, respectively. The Coos, Bay's, the Coos Bay area covers about uh, just under 1,400 square miles, and the Brookings area covers about 450 square miles. Wow. Big, yeah, there's big footprints. Yeah, indeed. And yeah. there's some, there's a couple offshore wind areas that are further along in development off of um, 
mid California, Southern California. I forget exactly where they are. I want to say it's like Catalina Islands, one of them. But uh, more yeah, I mean, it's yeah, yeah, much further along in the East Coast, obviously. And as I'm sure listeners know, there's a difference with the continental shelf out here. It's uh, not nearly as it does not extend nearly as far out into the ocean as it does in the Atlantic, which makes it somewhat more problematic, um, more costly yeah. to develop, but certainly not a game stopper. No, not a lot of implications. You know, California uh, coastal residents love their views. I just, uh, man, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one. And you're not just talking about turbines. People, a lot of people aren't aware of like the substations for these facilities are massive. I heard one described as Fenway Park with a Statue of Liberty on top of it. Um, well, yeah, they're big. <laughs> I have to say, I, uh, so I grew up in at, just outside Boston, so. Oh, there you go. I, I like that metaphor, actually. So, and my family used to, we were fortunate enough to go during the summer to this place called Block Island. It's in between Long Island and Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and listeners will know Block Island probably because it is the first, it's the site of the country's first offshore wind development. I've not right. been there since the, the turbines went up. Sure. Fenway Park, the green monster, right? The wall. <laughs> It's called yes. the wall. <laughs> yeah. They don't call it the green monster anymore? No, I don't know what the green monster is. It's the wall. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, well, uh, people grow up there calling it the green monster too, but. Okay. Purists. What do I know? I'm from Virginia. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for that. I'm back in California. <laughs> a little administrative news. Western Energy Imbalance Market Governing Body. June 29th, uh, some administrative changes. Rob Coins, I'm going to try this last name. Rob Coinsolka and Jennifer Gardner will serve as chair and vice chair of the EIM after some June 29th votes. Uh, the governing body also reappointed John Prescott and Andrew Campbell from Berkeley's Haas School, uh, who will replace outgoing member Valerie Fong. Valerie Fong, uh, formerly the city of Palo Alto's utilities director, has served on the governing body since it was established in 2016. Konzoika assumed chair duties July 1st. If you're listening, I apologize for butchering your name. He succeeded Anita Decker. He served on the governing board since early 2020. Um, Jennifer Gardner is an attorney and independent energy consultant began her term July 1st. Prior to joining the governing body, she served in various EIM leadership roles, including regional issues forum vice chair. And as I mentioned, uh, Andrew Campbell, who I've talked to a few times, is executive director of the Energy Institute at Haas at the University of California, Berkeley. A very intelligent, capable gentleman. He served on the EIM Governance Review Committee for two years. His term will end in June 2025. Back in the Northwest, after a dry start to 2022, Washington and Oregon record their fourth wettest springs since record keeping began in 1895. And the region's cool, wet spring has extended into early summer. While the gray skies and chilly weather have kept Northwesterners bundled up and prompted jokes about January weather, uh, it's also <laughs> recharged the river, the region's river basins. Uh, in April and May, rainfall in Washington was nearly three inches more than the historic average, 
And for Oregon, that same period, it was uh, 2.7 inches more than uh, the historic average. And temperatures throughout the Northwest have also been at least four degrees Fahrenheit below normal, making it the third coldest April and May in Washington, sixth coldest in Idaho, and eighth coldest in Oregon. But the upside of all of this, aside from, you know, kind of crummy Memorial Day picnics, uh, is that according to the Northwest River Forecast Center, the April to September water supply at the Dalles Dam on the Columbia is now 110% of normal. That's up from uh, forecasts that were below 100% as late as early April. Fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. a little bit of improvement in drought conditions. In the past few weeks, still pretty uh, pretty tight in California. Um, we recently had a stat, June 13th, snow water equivalent, Sierra Nevada, measured 0.1 inch devel- based on readings from 99 stations. This is 0% of average for that day. Oof. Pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. Yes. When you guys have a story this week, too, about um, the the hordes of new in- – or- yeah, the insect hordes coming from mm-hmm. drought parched lands, the oh, including the Mormon cricket. Yeah, I have to say it was not a animal that I'm aware of that I was aware of, but um, it's life yeah. in the West. Yeah, it's uh, always life an adventure. It is. I um, I had to laugh. I guess a few months back. Um, I was back in January. I had booked a hotel with my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, at the marina down in um, San Francisco, and uh, there was a tsunami warning as I was driving there. I'm like, you're kidding me. So, yes, you just never know. But I still love it here. I I see the signs every once in a while while I'm down on the coast. Uh, Yeah, tsunami evacuation route but i've never actually been around for a warning so i i take it there there wasn't a tsunami there wasn't so did it was it on the radio was it on your phone like how did you get the alert i got the alerts on you know social media but um yeah we were good it was just kind of you know we'd been through wildfire season we've been through covid and then now tsunamis but you know it is just kind of mind-boggling to think yeah wildfire season pandemic uh hordes of insects um uh, yeah but i love the weather here (laughs) uh okay well with that upbeat note yes uh that's all from me dan catchable thank you for listening as always uh please rate and review this podcast an apple podcast spotify or however you listen and let other people know about it energy west is edited and produced by our colleagues sarah wooten at pioneer utility resources and lucas smith at lucky sound studio you can find me on twitter i'm at d catchpole and my co-host jason fordney is on twitter at fordney energy You can read more of our coverage at newsdata.com. Nobody covers energy in the West like we do. Follow us on Twitter. CEM is at CEM Newsdata. That's the letter CEM Newsdata. Clearing up is at CU Newsdata. Again, that's the letters CU Newsdata. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. You've been listening to Newsdata's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow.